Well, let's pray again. We're going to open the word together in just a moment, but we sure need God's help. So you join me, please, as we continue praying. Sovereign God, it is your cause, as we have just sung a few moments ago, that engages our own hearts. And we renounce our own purposes and causes that so often occupy the attention of our souls, fill up our gaze. But we know that your eternal purposes, things that you have laid down from long ago, things that you are accomplishing at this moment, things yet to be, these purposes are the greatest priorities for us. And so we appeal to you with great joy and expectation today that you would fulfill your purposes. In particular, that you would set up your kingdom in every place where Satan now reigns. That you would expel the darkness and death and destruction that he has brought into this world as a result of our sin. That you would overthrow his strongholds on this day and that you would save and rescue precious people those who've been created in your image to know you and walk with you. Glorify yourself and we will rejoice for to bring honor to your name is our one great desire as your church. We adore you. We praise you. Thank you that you are God and God alone. And we long that others would know this and feel this, experience this and rejoice in it as so many of us have, have come to know and experience. Our prayer today is that all people might love and praise you, that they, might, that they might know you as you are, and that you might receive all glory from this world. Let sinners be brought to you for your great namesake. We know, Lord, that there is a profound spiritual darkness in the world that cannot be lifted by reason alone. It can only be lifted and, and banished by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are praying for that work, not just here in Riverton, but around the world. We ask, Lord, that you would use us however you should choose. Do with us what you will. But, oh, Lord God, please promote your cause in this world and let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. We ask, Father, that you would bring in great numbers to Jesus and let us see that glorious day and give us hearts that yearn and work for multitudes of souls. Let us be willing to invest all, to give all of ourselves to that end. And while we live, our prayer is that we would labor for you to the utmost of our strength, that we would spend our time profitably in your work and both in our health and in our weakness, we would be witnesses to Jesus Christ. So it is your cause that we long for and pray for on this day, not our own. You are King of the nations, King of kings forever, the Savior of the world. And we ask that you would answer our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Kevin preached two weeks ago that Christian community is created by the common life that we share in Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes people think of establishing a church and it's the result of of people getting together who have a a particular vision or like-mindedness for the way it ought to be structured and things they ought to pursue. But when you open your Bible and begin to read some of the things, and Kevin and Matt have directed us to those things over the last two weeks, you realize it is actually Jesus who by his life and by his work begins to transform people and pull them together, calling them together. He is the one who creates a church, or a genuine Christian community. And because we are in relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we are in relationship with one another. You may not be aware of it moment by moment, but if you are in Jesus Christ, that is, you are in a real, spiritual, personal union with Him, then you're also in union with His people. Some of them are gathered in this room today. Many, the vast majority, are scattered all around the world. So what a thought it is to think that even people we've never met who are followers of Jesus, there's a real spiritual union that exists. I thought it was helpful that Kevin spoke that this relationship is developed not simply as a result of shared subjective experiences, but also as a result of shared objective truth. And so the the gospel truth, to, to summarize with a very simple term. The gospel truth is what stands at the middle of our relationship. We believe certain things about Jesus because that's what he's revealed to us about him. We didn't make this up. It's not the the church fathers through history who said, here's the body of truth that we're going to put forward and suggest that all of you believe it. No, this is truth that God himself has given to us. And that's why we open this book in this assembly every week. It's why we encourage you to be a person of this book. Because this Bible that we hold in our hands, both the Old and the New Testament, is the revelation of God Himself. Now, one of our core values as a church family is fervent prayer. I want to tie this into this theme of Christian community, because that's also one of our core values. And that this little three-part series that Kevin began and then Matt ran with last week during the preaching time, and I'm going to conclude with today, is about building genuine Christian community. But there's another core value that is vital to Christian community, and that is this core value of of fervent prayer. And we have tried to summarize in this one little paragraph statement the, the significance of prayer for us as a body of believers. We believe that Jesus Christ teaches and models a pattern of fervent prayer. Just as the early church devoted itself to prayer, so we, as Gospel Hope Church, commit to being a congregation devoted to prayer. And we take that from Acts 2.42. We affirm by word and practice the necessity of prayer, believing the promise of God that such praying has great power as it is working. And that's what James 5.17 teaches us. Fervent prayer will be a part of our lives individually and corporately, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And you know, when we use that word corporately, I'm not speaking of corporate America, not not the business world. Corporate uh, has the idea of a body of people, right? Okay, so that's how we're using it. So we want want you to be a, a person of prayer individually, but we want to be a church of prayer as we gather in small groups and assemble for the purpose of worship each Lord's Day. Now, I want to pause right there and just speak to the individual component of this for just a moment. Do you ever look at your prayer life, as I often do, and think to yourself, 
I just don't do this well. I, I've met very few people in my life who would say in, in honesty and the right kind of humility, my prayer life is so rich and deep and satisfying that I just don't know how else it could grow and develop at this point. As a matter of fact, it seems to be that those who are even more serious and mature in their prayer lives long for even more. And I'll give you an illustration of a man who's well known in church history as a praying saint, a, a man who devoted himself to prayer. So let's just put this out here. Most of us are, though, at, at, at the other end of the spectrum saying, you know what, I not only don't do it well, I don't even do it enough. And if we were really honest at this point, and, and we could look back over the last seven days and say, how much time really did you personally devote to prayer? What would it total at? And if I ask for a show of hands at this point, how many of you prayed seven hours this past week? That would be an average of one hour a day. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you swallowed hard at that point. It's like, oh, oh my word, seven hours. I'm not even sure I prayed seven minutes. So I don't say that to, to, to voice this guilt trip on everybody, but to really put it in perspective, because honestly, most of us, if we're looking back over this past week, would probably be in the category of, I didn't pray nearly enough. So we're just going to put that right out there, admit it up front. But now let's go to the Word of God in order that both our individual prayer life and our corporate prayer life may be grown and matured and developed and inspired by the Word of God. Because regardless of your past record, God is clear in His Word that He wants you to be a praying individual and He wants us to be a praying church. And He knows all those struggles. He knows all the fears and frustrations that roll through your, your soul, even those nights where you go to bed saying, you know what, I'm going to get up 20 minutes extra early tomorrow because I need to pray. And then the alarm goes off and you don't do it and you live that, that day feeling like a failure. Or other days you actually get up and, and you're there with all sincerity and you're ready to make the effort and it just seems like an exercise in futility. You say, what's my deal? Well, you're not yet perfect. You're struggling through life by faith. And the Lord knows those struggles. And He knows the weakness of our hearts. But His commands remain. And the model that He personally sets for us is inspiring. And the model of the early church is also inspiring. So today we're going to look at, the, at prayer from the vantage point of the first church, the early church, as it is revealed to us in the book of Acts. So open your Bibles to Acts 1. Acts 1. It's on the screen there for you if you would like to follow along, but I really I want to continue to encourage you to bring your own copy of the Scriptures, whether it's printed or electronic. I just think there is value in you setting your eyes on the Word of God as it's opened in your lap. All right? Let you follow along as I read the first 14 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Hey, quick side point. What first book is this author talking about and who wrote it? Luke, right. Who was a medical doctor, by the way. All right. So he's written two books of the New Testament, the, the Gospel of Luke, and then this is the follow-up uh, writing of Luke. So that's who's speaking to his friend Theophilus in the verse 1. All that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Now pay attention to this. This is a key verse for us this morning. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And a little parenthetical thought I like to insert is Riverton, Utah, is the end of the earth from Jerusalem's vantage point and even that point in history. Who knew about Riverton at that point? Jesus did. All right, let's keep reading. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. That's a different Judas from Iscariot. And look at this. Here's the second and actually more important verse for our consideration this morning. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I just want to ask a series of questions that this text is helpful in answering. Why be devoted to prayer? Sometimes we ask that question from the vantage point that, you know what, we believe God is sovereign, He's going to do all His holy will, right? Is, I mean, isn't that a true statement? God is sovereign. He will do all His holy will. So why pray? Or sometimes we even feel so helpless that we just feel like, what's the point? I've prayed for weeks or months or years for particular things, and nothing's happened. Prayer doesn't seem effective. Why should I be devoted to prayer? Why should the church be devoted to prayer? There are a lot of passionate, gifted people around here. I mean, we worked really hard through the summer. Some of you discovered Gospel Hope as a result of some of those events that we had uh, at Riverton City Park or the door hangers that we were passing. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff going on. I mean, why don't we just stay busy with this really good work? And so we almost feel like prayer is unimportant in comparison to just working hard. Why be devoted to prayer? Well, there are four answers to that question that I want to share with you this morning very quickly. First of all, the example of the early church, and we'll explain that a little more fully in just a moment. These are people who are are devoted, as Luke describes to prayer. Verse 14 is where we first encounter it. If you continued reading into chapter 2 and came to verse 42, you would see there again Luke uses that phrase, they were devoting themselves to prayer among other things. Here's a second reason, the teaching of Jesus. In passages like Matthew 6 where he is teaching the disciples to pray, he first of all says things like this, you must not be like the hypocrites 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then Jesus goes on to give what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But it's really, it, it, it's really a, a sample prayer, if you will, a guideline. And so Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And listen to this next part. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he goes on from there to give some other examples of petitions and requests that we ought to offer to the Lord. But at the center of this is this kingdom-minded focus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, not the church's will, not the community will. Let God's will be done on earth. So there is an example of the early church being devoted to prayer. There's teaching of Christ that even further focuses it toward the kingdom. And then here's a third reason. Think about the one to whom we pray. And in Jesus' model prayer, if you will, he, he uses this, this a term of address, first of all, our Father, and that speaks of a very personal, familial relationship. He is our Heavenly Father. He is one who's revealed Himself to us, not just as the sovereign creator of all, but one who exists in in personal and intimate fellowship with His people. That's hard for some of you because you had a really terrible earthly father. Maybe he was just a wicked and evil man. Maybe he was indifferent and, and distant from you. Maybe he was abusive. And so even this concept that God might be your father creates some dissonance in your soul. But, but you have to remove all of those poor examples because in your soul, in your soul, you know that a father should actually be a, a person of love and leadership, of care and protection, one who provides for you and, and nurtures you along and leads you. And even the negative experience you had of an earthly father who was not what he ought to be demonstrates that there is an ideal and God himself is that divine ideal. He's the one we're praying to. It's beautiful that back in that portion of Matthew 6 that I read where Jesus is saying, you don't need to just stack up phrases like the pagan people do because God's not heard because you pray so many words. And then he uses the term father and he says he already knows what you need. That's because good fathers try to be in tune with their children, right? So he's father, but also he's the father in heaven. Not just occupying a space in heaven, but if you read through the scriptures, you realize he rules from heaven's throne. It is the epicenter of the universe. It is the center of power. And there's not one thing that happens in the universe outside of the control of the God who rules and reigns on heaven's throne. And that's the one to whom we pray. So why be devoted to prayer? Because the God to whom we pray is both father and king of all. There's a fourth reason that I think emerges from the scriptures, and that is there's a promise of power. Now, the specific promise is James 5.16. 
And, and that's where James, in writing this little letter to the early church, is reminding them that Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, was actually just made out of the same stuff we are, uh, a man of the same nature that we are. And James reminds us, he prayed, and actually the Lord shut up the heavens and it stopped raining. And he prayed again and it rained. Now, I know most of us are like, yeah, I've, I've never prayed for things like that. But James is, is trying to put the focus not on Elijah, and, and not even saying that we ought to be like Elijah, but then he goes on to make this point in James 5.16. The, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous individual accomplishes much. You see, he's, he's turning it back to you and me to give us encouragement to say, you know what, if you're living in faith and, and walking in, in just a, a whole right relationship with God, you don't have to be perfect, but it, if you're a righteous person in that way and you begin to pray, stuff happens. And the power's not in you or me, right? The power's in God, but he's ordained this means of making things happen. Your prayers are part of how God accomplishes his great will. Sometimes we feel like we've got to be really great Christians before we can pray great prayers. As if we got to know all kinds of stuff and um, have all kinds of experience behind us and almost like this, you know, this really significant spiritual resume. But you just don't find that in Scripture. You find these simple commands that just say, pray. Pray without ceasing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So these commands are there. How many of you here uh, would say, honestly, and you would actually have the resume to to prove this, um, the, the one person I know of who would fall in this category isn't here today, but there may be others of you. How many of you are highly trained in the field of electricity? Whether it's an electrician or maybe even kind of an electrical engineer, but you're like, you know, I, I actually know quite a bit. Okay, Jonathan knows some things. Uh, Randy raised his hand there, knows a few things. Either one of you guys actually have power to create electricity? So you know stuff about it but your expertise has limits on it. But you know, the power grid is quite remarkable, isn't it? And, and so much of our lives depends on it. I mean, we have lights here this morning and fans and an AC system and uh, a, a video screen that's rolling. We've got speakers up here. I mean, so much of what we are doing. Of course, everybody's carrying a smartphone that has to be powered up with uh, electricity from another source. But what if I were to say to you, you know, I not only know stuff about electricity, but I, I have the power to make it light in this room or actually to make it dark. And, and I actually, I'm going to demonstrate that to you right now. <laughs> I know a lot of you didn't know I had you know, such incredible skills, but are you not in awe of me at this moment? Yeah, stay facing the front. I don't want you to know my secret here. Watch this. I, I'm going to bring the lights back on. Now, you're laughing for the right reason because you realize the only thing I'm really skilled and equipped to do at this particular point is to, as we say in the South, mash the button. And if you mash the top side of that button, lights come on. If you mash the bottom side of that button, the lights go off. Nobody's impressed with a person who just hits the switch. The impressive power is in the grid And the impressive power for this Christian life we're living and the work we're seeking to do is in God alone. It's not in you and me, but do you know something? If we're not even faithful enough to go mash the button or flip the switch 
in our prayers, we don't engage with the power grid. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, when I, when I hit the bottom of those three switches there, power didn't go off across the valley. I mean, Dominion Energy is still operational. Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain Power Company, I mean, all these energy companies are still doing their stuff. There's power still active in the valley. But if we choose not to flip the switches and, and tap into that power, there, there's not a lot going on here. And I want you to see prayer in that way. And we could live kind of with the illusion or even delusion that spiritual stuff is going on because we can remain active as a church. Talking, singing, worshiping, serving the community, doing all, this, all these events, but without prayer behind it, in it, around it, over it, it's not God's power that's at work. And the early church understood this brings me to my second question. What does it mean to be devoted to prayer? This is not a secret. Just look at the text with me. Verse 14 of Acts 1, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. One accord really has the idea of one mind. And so here's the first part of that. What does it mean to be devoted to prayer? That means together we set our minds to pray. That, that as a congregation, as a community of faith, we resolve together, we will pray. All these with one accord, that is with one mind. There are many things that we will never have one mind on. Your attire is a demonstration of that. You have different preferences when it comes to clothing. And that's okay. There's plenty of room in the church for actually all kinds of different opinions. But here's one that we cannot afford to have a different mindset from individual to individual, family to family, group to group. We must be of one mind. All these with one accord. Here's the second thing. And together we steadfastly pray. That is what you find in that little phrase. They were devoting themselves to prayer. The idea of devoting to prayer just means day after day, Gathering after gathering, you do it. And just there, steadfastly praying. You know what's powerful to me in this particular text is that God doesn't actually tell us what they were praying. If, if he had scripted it all out, the church would probably get stuck right there and think that those were the magic words that God blessed to bring about Pentecost in chapter 2 and 3,000 people were saved in one day and the church just exploded. We're so superstitious by nature that we would think, well, the power must be in those words. No, remember, where's the power? In God. But you do see a church that gathers and says, we got to do this thing called prayer. What do we pray about? Third question. Well, again, the text doesn't tell us, but it is important for us to kind of look at the whole story. That's part of the reason I read the first 14 verses, because as you look back at the things that Jesus had left with them, in those 40 days that he spent with the disciples between his resurrection and his ascension, Luke has just told us he was instructing them concerning many things about the kingdom of God. He was demonstrating, I'm really alive, because Luke had mentioned, by many proofs, so he's present physically. He speaks to them. He shares meals with them. He shows up at unexpected moments. He calls them to gather with him at other significant teaching times. So by many proofs, he's demonstrating, I really am resurrected from the dead. But in these 40 days I have with you before I ascend to my Father, I also want to tell you, as verse 3 records, 
about the kingdom of God. And then verse 8, remember I said when we read that, this is really important. He says to them, you will receive power. There's a promise. You will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's the purpose of receiving that power? And this is the big mission he puts them on that you may be my witnesses. So I think that may form some of the content of what they begin to pray about. They have these promises of God, so maybe their prayer time included just rejoicing in these promises. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have promised us the Holy Spirit. We can't wait to receive him. We watched you operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't know what it's going to mean for us, but we thank you for that. And then uh, as, as they are focusing on this promise that they'll receive power, I'm sure that the mission of Christ was at the forefront. Lord, you've called us to be witnesses. What does that mean for us? What will it look like when we witness? Help us to be faithful witnesses. Help us to be bold witnesses. Help us to be clear in our witness for you. Again, the text doesn't tell us, but I think if you look at the surrounding context, it's at least reasonable to think that these might be some of the themes that they were praying over as they gathered in, the, in that upper room. And then here's another thought, to the end of the earth. Well, where would that be? Maybe they pulled out maps while they were praying. They started saying, you know what? Somebody's got to, got to go to India. And Thomas, by the way, was that guy. Went all the way. How many thousands of miles was that journey? Who did he take with him? I, there are many things that are unclear to us at this point. I don't know that they rolled out maps while they were having this prayer meeting, but again, in the context, I cannot believe that they would have prayed, Lord, just give us a good day. Lord, help us to have a safe trip as we go on vacation. Start thinking through some of the things that we pray, and many of them don't fall into the category of a kingdom focus, do they? Now again, should we pray over all things, safety on vacation trips? Absolutely. There's a, there's a time and place for that. But when the church gathers you have a sense that there is a kingdom purpose and kingdom mission that is at the forefront. Who prays? Look again at the text. One of those things that's easy to overlook, but Luke names all the apostles who remain at that point and includes this at the end of verse 14, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Verse 15 actually tells us, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120. I don't know that all 120 were present in that first prayer gathering that Luke is describing here, but one thing is for sure, by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, you're reading, and it's very clear that all of them are devoting themselves to prayer. And I think the point is being made, it's all of us. All of us who are encouraged and exhorted and even expected to be a part of this community that prays. I just put that little number on the screen because it occurs to me that that's about the size Gospel Hope is right now. 120. 120 people who by faith learn to flip the switch. 120 people who don't understand it perfectly and, and don't have expertise in the power grid and a lot of questions remain, but who are willing to go to the back of the room and mash the button. That's all? There's such a great work that needs to be done. I mean, maybe God needs a thousand people to pray. Apparently not. 
In time, it will grow. But at this point, it's 120. What kind of crazy strategy did Jesus actually put in motion at that particular point where he says, you know, I've I've lived 33 years among you, three of those years with a very focused and public ministry teaching you and instructing you, and now I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you, imperfect as you are, weak in faith as many of you are, uh, still needing to be trained in your right understanding of theology as all of you are. But my plan is to use imperfect people and give them tools, one of which is praying, and I'm going to change the world. Who prays? The answer is we must. I know some of you are saying, I've only been saved a few months. I, I, I don't even know how to read my Bible well, let alone pray. Oh, join the club. And some of you are at the other end saying, you know, I've been saved 50, 60 years or more. Uh, you, can't, you can't rely on your experience and spiritual maturity as if somehow your prayers are more effective than the newest believer in the room next to you. Where does the power exist? Outside of you and me. It's all in God. It's in his grid. But all of us must be a part of this. And what's the effect? Well, the effect, if you, and we didn't read all the way into chapter two, but I'll commend that to your private reading later. But chapter two begins with this wonderful and ominous note when the day of Pentecost arrived and Pentecost was initially just another really special feast day of the Jews but even this is about to be changed forever and those of you who've who've known the Lord and and read his word and studied it know that we don't think of Pentecost as much as a Jewish feast any longer we think of it the day that Peter preached a great message and 3,000 people were converted and in one sense the church was born And there is a connection to the fact that 120 people were praying. Now, let's be realistic. Lest we just, we, we kind of develop this, um, what I think is a, an unhelpful and unrealistic expectation. There, there was a lot of good that happened. It's a good thing when 3,000 people are converted in one day. It's a good thing when the gospel is clearly proclaimed. It's a good thing when disciples are, are stirred up and both men and women start looking at their lives and evaluating, what do I own? What do I possess? Where has God positioned me? How can, I, how can I leverage all of that for the sake of his glorious kingdom? Those are good things. And all of that you begin to see develop in chapter two, but there's also some hard stuff that comes on the heels of this. Persecution erupts almost immediately and Stephen will be the first martyr after these great prayer meetings. Dying for the faith. Dying because there was a powerful religious group still in Jerusalem who was rejecting the Messiah that they had crucified and now was angrier than ever that his disciples are proclaiming the good news. And they hauled Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And then the persecution began to spread. 
It was not easy to be a follower of Jesus. That's part of the reason if you keep reading through the prayers of Acts, you'll see them praying at one particular point, Lord, give us boldness because following Jesus costs us. We studied that just a few weeks back in the Gospel of Mark, didn't we? Jesus doesn't make it easy. He doesn't promise that if you just do these things, it'll be a glorious time and, and you'll be comfortable and at ease and you'll be, you'll be fully funded for all the ventures that you have in mind and it, life will be great. Oh, there's greatness in it, the good, and there's hard stuff. There's the bad. But the effect of praying is that Jesus begins building a church and begins establishing his kingdom. Now, it brings us to a very practical point as this community of faith. And it's the last question I want us to look at this morning. So how can I learn to pray kingdom-focused prayers? And, and I want to encourage you along two lines. The first is individually. And then second, we're going to talk in very practical terms about just two things as a church family we want to devote ourselves to. The, the, those will be points of application. We want to be devoted to prayer as Gospel Hope Church, but here's how we're going to begin to work it out. That's where I'm headed to. Here, here's the first one. Study the prayers of the New Testament. I actually took that, that picture earlier this morning, and that's my Bible open to Romans 15, and then laying, lying on top of it um, is a little booklet that we've printed out to help you. And this is a little booklet, it's nine pages, and it's about 40 prayers that Paul recorded under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And there are 50 copies, there's enough for at least, for, for sure, one for each household, and, and then once everybody has an opportunity, uh, we'll print more of those, so take them with you. We can also email you uh, the, the file, so if you'd rather have an electronic copy, just let us know, or Daniel and I were talking this morning, we may just send it out with this next mid midweek email, uh, a link to it or whatever. But here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin to just read through the kinds of prayers that Paul records for us. Some of them are prayers of gratitude. He'll just say, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, the Philippians in particular. He's thinking back to their partnership in the gospel and how generous they've been with him. And it's just a prayer of thanks and praise to God for the Philippians. They're prayers of blessing. And they may be one sentence, grace be to you. And Paul's praying that over people that he loves. There are also prayers where he would say, I do not cease to ask God to make you worthy of his calling, that you may live a holy and blameless life. You will read all kinds of things in these prayers of Paul as they've been recorded for us in the New Testament, and I want you to begin to use them personally in your prayer time. Some of you already do, but some of you haven't thought of, of using the prayers that are recorded in, in the New Testament in this way. Insert the names of, of your family members or friends. Insert the names of people in this church as you see those lines that would be appropriate. Pray these kinds of prayer. This is what I mean when I say we need to learn to pray kingdom-focused prayers. There were, let me give you an illustration though where so often our minds, our minds tend to go to what's easiest and simplest. We were gathered with our small group um, at our old church a number of years ago. And as we did, each time we came together, we would give people an opportunity to share uh, prayer requests. And, and it, was, you know, it was from small and insignificant to really huge things and sometimes big needs. And looking back, you know, what a blessing to pray with people, to see God answer prayer uh, over time, to see God say, wait, it's not time yet. All kinds of things happen. But I remember one night being struck by the fact that we just didn't seem to be prepared as a group 
And, and here's what I mean. Prepared to, to, to really share, first of all, needs that were of a, of a kingdom significance, kingdom focus. And, and I don't think we were prepared to pray that night. And I'll never forget, one of the requests that was shared uh, went something like this. Hey, would you just pray? We're, we're going to take a trip, um, fly in to you know, see, see some family. Would you just pray that our luggage arrives safely? I remember my, my first thought was, uh, maybe they're taking something valuable. So, do you have valuable stuff in your luggage? No. It's just such a hassle if you lose your luggage. And I remember on the one hand thinking, we all get that, but really? I mean, is that the most significant thought and need and purpose in our hearts tonight? The safe arrival of our luggage. Ugh. But you know, I think how often is my heart filled with, frankly, very self-centered, pitiful, insignificant needs. And going back to the great promise and mission that Jesus has set before us, he's saying you're going to receive power. Not power that promises the safe arrival of your luggage. The power that will fill you to bear witness to my glory. And so powerful will the presence of the Holy Spirit be in you that you will actually travel to the end of the earth to bear that witness. Studying the prayers of the New Testament helps us maintain that focus. Now, having just traveled and flown across the country, I get that whole thing of like, Lord, please let that big blue bag come down the belt, you know, right now. And it's a moment of rejoicing when you see it. And it's not wrapped up with that special airline tape because it fell apart on the way, right? But our lives are about so much more than that. And some of you don't see yourself as being, first of all, in relationship with Jesus Christ. And actually, for some of you, that's because you're not. You know about him, but you don't yet know him personally. But others of you who have come to know him personally, you've repented of your sins, you've put your faith in him, your, your faith is actively trusting him day by day, you don't actually see yourself as being caught up in that Acts 1-8 stuff. You, you feel like that was a promise for the, the 11 apostles who remained at that point. You feel like that was for another person or a people at a different time and it's just like, I'm, I'm just nobody. Well, you got that part right. But in union with Jesus Christ, you are his specially commissioned, specially placed for this moment, at this point in history, witness. This is for you. That's part of what motivates me to pray because I think, oh, Lord, I, who are we? Who am I? We can't do this. It's too great. It's too, too, too much opposition, too many things that I don't yet understand. And the Lord just keeps graciously and kindly but firmly saying, would you pray instead of worry? Would you pray instead of scheming? How can I 
Learn to pray kingdom-focused prayers. Study the prayers of the New Testament. Then here's a second recommendation for you. And these are four resources that God has blessed me with. I put a picture up there. If you'd rather put your hands on them and even get uh, you know, titles and there may be some call numbers and whatnot in here where if you want to order these. But these are, there are two different kinds of, of tools in my hand. Um, this one, the Valley of Vision, by the way, the song we sang earlier, Let Your Kingdom Come, was written out of one of the prayers in this book. All right, so this is a collection of prayers from long ago. Most of them are prayers of the old Puritans. You will learn a lot as you listen to other people pray, and this we just listen, uh, historically speaking. Then this is a great book written by Isaac Watts, a famous hymn writer, but a very godly man, and he has actually written a a work titled A Guide to Prayer, and there are a number of prayers in this for you. And some of you say, "I, I really don't want my prayer life to deepen. One of the greatest things you can do is study the prayers of other believers. And then two tools that have been very helpful. I've shared this one with you before, and this is just a little different variation of it, uh, but a couple of tools put together by a pastor and author named Kenneth Boa, The Handbook to Prayer, and the subtitle will tell you everything you need to know about this, Praying Scripture Back to God. And it's actually a three-month prayer guide that's organized uh, daily prayers through different kinds, everything from adoration and renewal, petition, intercession, affirmation, thanksgiving, a variety of of specific prayers in here, but all of them based in Scripture. Kenneth Boa is quite the scholar, so it's actually his translation of Hebrew and Greek uh, Bible passages, uh, but it's really close to what most of us are reading in our English versions. And then this is just a little variation also by Kenneth Boa, Face to Face, and I'll have these up here afterwards if any of you would like to uh, take a look at those, but I would encourage you to get tools like this, add them to your library so that you can study prayers of other believers. Again, the words aren't magic, so it's not like if you just pray those exact prayers, then you too can be a spiritual person in 30 days. Um, That brings me to my final point. Just pray. You can read all kinds of books about prayer, but until you begin to pray, the lights remain off in the room. You can sample all of Paul's prayers in the New Testament and, and study them out. But until you begin to take some of those words or, or paraphrase them or, or just offer your own words to God, you haven't mashed the button. And you need to pray personally, but we also need to pray together. Now, here are two ways. Two ways that you can do it. And we're going to add a few more through the, the fall in particular. But the first would be, come to the 845 prayer meeting we have here every Sunday. I'm going to tell you straight up, attendance has been pretty sparse of late. I know for some of you, you say, 845, 930 is early enough, please. Now you want me to get up even earlier? Yeah, I do. Because there are big kingdom purposes in the world that we need to be praying over. Well, I'm not sure I can come every week. Okay, could you come one Sunday morning a month? That'd be a good start. I'm looking at a lot of parents of little kids. I'm like, what about my kids? Bring them in the room. If they get too squirrely, take them out, give them a little lesson, bring them back in. (laughs) Or keep walking around the parking lot and let them squeal and do their thing. You just walk around the parking lot and pray and say, oh, I wish I could be with all the other big people in the prayer meeting. 
Don't underestimate the significance of your little kid sitting there in a room of six or seven or 60 or 70 other people listening to them pray. It's part of how we make heaven real and Jesus Christ real to the little ones when they're watching and hearing us pray to the living God. You say, mm, one Sunday a month, I'm not ready to commit to that. One Sunday a quarter, start somewhere. So 8.45, Sunday mornings, we're here. And you know what? We're gonna, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to start taking one of these passages per Sunday and making that the main prayer guide for that particular Sunday morning. So we're actually going to practice some of this uh, using the New Testament prayers. Then here's the second way. We've already been doing this for a year as we've been meeting in community groups, and we're about to relaunch those. But prayer has been a significant part of that, but more than ever, we want to make prayer in those community group gatherings, just the centerpiece and praying kingdom-focused prayers. And yeah, we're going to pray about our tra- safe travels and vacation plans and you know, work needs and, and, and the things that would kind of fall into that daily living category. But we must, beloved, when we gather in those small groups, pray kingdom-focused prayers. So a praying community is what we must be because we're in relationship first of all with Christ who is a praying savior and we are in relationship with one another and the sovereign God who is our heavenly father has ordained this means among others for accomplishing eternally significant work you know what I expect just to make this realistic, I always pray and hope with the expectation that, you know, kind of our own little Salt Lake Pentecost will break out a day or two after we gather to pray. And we should hope and expect that. But even the course of the New Testament demonstrates that as the church was growing, there's just all kinds of stuff going. Some of it good, some of it bad, some of it really hard, some of it disappointing. Some people abandoning the faith, some people trying to tweak the faith and introduce another gospel, as Paul says in Galatians. False teachers enter the church. I mean, if you read through the rest of the New Testament from Acts 1, that's what takes this glorious shine off of chapter 2 where you just kind of feel like, you know what, if we just pray to Jesus and preach his gospel, thousands of people get saved and life is good and the church grows and it's just not like that. So as we pray, hope and expect for great things, but be realistic enough to know that we should also expect life to continue. And that's going to mean good stuff and hard stuff. But woe on us if we do not pray. Let's bow our heads in prayer for a moment. And what I want you to do is just, I want you to take the, the thought that is uppermost in your soul right now. And for some of you, that may simply be, I just need to start praying. I don't even pray seven minutes in the course of a week. So Lord, please forgive me. I'm going to take a step of faith and just begin to pray for seven minutes a day. That would be, that would be an awesome step for some of you to take. And I, and I choose the word awesome intentionally, that it would be huge for you. And there may be others of you who say, you know, I kind of pray at this base level, but it's time for me to take another step. I need to get one of those prayer guides 
and just start to study the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and incorporate that. I need to pray with more intentionality, more specificity, kingdom-focused prayers. And that, that's the step of faith you're going to take right now. Some of you are going to be leading a community group, and you know how it goes. You know when people come, and they're just sharing, and it's great stuff, and you don't want to cut off the sharing time, but you, you already know that prayer can become an afterthought in the community group. And as a leader, the step that God would call you to very practically is to say, you know what, we're going to make sure we, we pray as a matter of priority, and the schedule is going to reflect it. God, would you help me to figure out how to do that? What is the thought that's uppermost in your soul right now regarding prayer? Lord Jesus, how thankful we are that the power is yours, the glory is yours, the mission is yours, the kingdom is yours. It's all yours. And what a privilege it is to be called not just into personal relationship with you, that we may know you, the living God, but to participate with you as, you as you build your church, as you establish your kingdom and dominion in the souls of people just like us. Would you do it through gospel hope? And in this particular matter of prayer, oh Lord God, we, we need to be inspired and motivated and strengthened every single day. Teach us to be a church family that like that little group of 120 in Acts 1 are devoted to prayer. So by faith, we're, we're just going to do our best to flip the switch, accessing this massive power grid of your kingdom and your gospel. And as we do our little even insignificant part, would you bless it and would you do the eternally significant work that we would see thousands converted before it's too late, that we would see marriages and families transformed and individuals totally remade because Christ has come to dwell in their hearts as king. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.